And good morning. This is Alicia Bales. I am live in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax. Hey, Drew. Good morning. So this is the local coronavirus update. We will be uh, opening up the phone lines right about, I don't know, as soon as we get through with the update. We come to you every other Tuesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Correct. First and, and third Tuesday of the month. And yes. Today and today is february 1st it is the first tuesday of the month and uh we are obviously in the midst of a massive omicron surge here in mendocino county like everywhere else in this country and so we're going to get a report from the er what's it like well i am very glad to be through january yeah it was a long long omicron month Mm. um but it is getting better um i i you know the numbers show it um both locally and statewide and certainly nationally um and it feels better in the er um it's improving over the course of the last several days i was just there until the early hours this morning and we have beds um they're not a lot of regional beds beds are still quite tight in the state of california but we have not lost capacity um during the entire month of this surge it was close i mean i had predicted that it would be close and there were um about a dozen about a half dozen days perhaps where i was afraid that my prediction was unduly optimistic because we were just finding it very hard to transfer anybody out for anything um and the numbers were pretty high they are still quite high to be sure but it's easing um quite a bit so after the last two weeks we're sort of in a very different place than we were before well, it's a it's a new place to be sure. Um, I wouldn't say it's very different yet because mm-hmm. we're still seeing on the order of about 150 new cases a day in this county. Um, mm-hmm. So very very high case counts still. Um, we would like to see that number drop into the single digits, and we're at 150. So the the rate of transmission is still very high in the county. Um, but um, as we now quite clearly know, Omicron is a much less serious illness. Um, Not that it's a trivial illness by any stretch of imagination. There are currently some 15 people hospitalized in the county, Uh, so to get into the numbers a little bit, um, four of whom are in the ICU. In the last two weeks since our last radio show, eight people in this county have died from COVID, um, most of whom were not uh, vaccinated, and those who were vaccinated, excuse me, um, were, um, you know, suffering from comorbidities that increased their risk substantially. So it's still, still here, still quite serious, but improving. Um, and improving, you know, not just sort of very marginally, but I think we're going to see a very sharp drop over the course of the next week. It's going to, I think, substantially ease um, fairly quickly. Now, Mendocino County, for whatever reason, has proven to be rather resilient in harboring uh, COVID. Um, and so we might not see the kind of drop off that they're seeing on the East Coast, um, you know, in terms of it dropping precipitously to single digits over the course of the next 10 days. But I'm optimistic that it will improve substantially. Um, during the next we're not going to make any sudden moves here no we we don't tend to do that in this county for reasons that i think are unclear to just about everybody certainly to me uh so 
in two weeks, we've added over 2,200 cases in the county. Um, that's coming in at about 150 cases a day. Uh, we're up to almost 12,000 uh, cases in the county, 11,952 as of yesterday evening. Uh, the county is no longer posting the number of people in quarantine um i think because it's just too many um and frankly with that many cases confirmed um and the vaccination rate in this county being at around 66 67 percent uh we're looking at a community that has a fair amount of natural and induced immunity um which is good right and so it's i think we're entering this phase um and it's been gaining traction over the course of the last couple of weeks um of covid becoming endemic um certainly i think that's where we're headed in this county and in the state of california california peaked um on the 16th so the day before maybe two days before our last show um we're down now around 40 percent um over the course of the last two weeks but we're still adding over 20,000 cases a day in just the state of california um but hospitalizations have finally started to come down they never reached a hospitalization in the state of California, never even came close to reaching the peak that we saw last January during the big surge of Delta. Um, most of that burden um, rested with the Southern California hospitals, but it was pretty tight up here as well back then. Um, here, it felt sort of similar to last January surge, just lower acuity. Um, I, I know, obviously, there are four people in the ICU, and we've had you know, over six, half a dozen deaths in the last two weeks. But it's interesting because I really haven't seen, and my fellow providers haven't seen, as many very sick COVID people. Um, just not as many intubations, not as many people requiring the super high flow supplemental oxygen. It's just a much more mild disease in general. Obviously, there are exceptions, but in general, it's been a much more mild disease. Right. With these numbers through the roof, 2,200 in the last two weeks, and yet it's easing in the ER. I just wonder how that's possible. Is this a result of people being vaccinated combined with the disease being more mild? I mean, yes. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, a, a year ago or two years ago, even if we saw those kind of numbers, we would have, you know, the flattening of the curve mantra that we were talking about two years ago now um, would have would have failed, um, and we would have been completely overwhelmed. Just overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, I wonder. I have a lot of questions for you today. So, are you done with the numbers? I'm. I'm done enough. Okay. So, except I want to just revisit that even with the the surge seeming to be receding, um, we did have eight deaths in our community in the last two weeks, and that's uh, just absolutely tragic. Yeah. Uh, we're far from, from through this thing, and we're still losing community members to it. Um, I want to talk a little bit what happened with, with my family over the last two weeks is my son got COVID. Um, and so our family, like hundreds of families in the county right now, dealt with... Uh, having a co somebody very, very sick with COVID. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that experience and what some of the best home care practices are for people. Because I know there's a lot of folks in that situation. I just want to say my son is fine now. He came through it, but he had, for all the talk about Omicron being mild, he's never been that sick. And um, talking about this on the radio for two years is is one thing, but experiencing it yeah. uh, i'm even more sort of 
committed to people making choices and doing what we can to stop this thing because it was a terrible, terrible it illness. It is a nasty illness. Um, I've been, you know, ever since I started seeing it, I've been emphasizing that point. This is not something to mess around with. Uh, I'm glad that your son is doing better. Um, we should say that he gave you permission and us permission to talk about his yeah. health um, condition. It yeah, it, it can make people feel really horrible. Now, that's not necessarily the norm. A lot of people get a very mild illness or are completely asymptomatic, um, particularly in people that are fully vaccinated and boosted. But your son was sort of in the unlucky middle, um, not so sick that he needed hospitalization um, or medical attention, but sick enough to... What stay in bed for five days? And he was feel out like he was, yeah. for five days with yeah. with fever, sore throat, headache, nausea. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a sort of the typical constellation of symptoms that we're seeing with Omicron. It does seem to cause sore throats uh, much more, <laughs> really painful. Yeah. And he's a teenager. Yeah. So for the idea, I mean, I realize that every individual experience is an anecdote, but the, it's not doesn't like sidestep teenagers teenagers also can get sick and so some of the questions that we had are just you know about how to take care of somebody who who's that sick with with coronavirus so the real the thing that you know needs to be understood for somebody who's taking care of somebody with with the covid at home is it is a viral illness um and so the things that we have been doing for the last you know 100 years for viral illnesses or 50 years um apply here as well so it's it's fluids it's rest it's acetaminophen or tylenol Mm -hmm. and ibuprofen Mm -hmm. um and those are kind of the big the big things that you can do at home um staying hydrated is critical because you do tend to run fevers and you dehydrate pretty quickly um and then the -the over-the-counter um antipyretics tylenol and ibuprofen acetaminophen are really going to keep the fever down and keep the aches and pains to a bit of a minimum um, for anybody who's adult sized um, I recommend and most most of my providers recommend sort of going strong on the ibuprofen and the acetaminophen so to make things simple on the air what I tell people to do um, at work or for my family is a thousand milligrams of acetaminophen three times a day um, that's a lot of Tylenol a lot of acetaminophen but that is very safe at that dosage and then ibuprofen um which is an anti-inflammatory is probably going to help a bit better for the aches and pains it really did yes it does um 600 uh three times a day you could boost it to four times a day but three times a day of each makes things more linear um and and that's alternating you can alternate them yeah. every kind of four yeah. hours. And, you kind know, of there's thing. there's a caveat if you're more elderly or if you have kidney disease, then you might want to throttle back on the ibuprofen a little bit. Um, take them with food, but those are going to really mitigate some of the misery that you would otherwise uh, experience with this illness. Mm-hmm. And is so after five days or so, I started to get worried. Is there any reason to worry? Not not in a teenager. Okay. Yeah, you you could keep that up for quite some time, and it would be fine. I kept wanting to like lower the dosage if possible. Yeah, you can lower it to whatever is effective, but to get to the sort of potent anti-inflammatory component of ibuprofen to work, you really need to hit 600. 600 is the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the prescription dose goes up to 800, but that doesn't really offer any greater um, benefit. So 600 is is kind of what most of us recommend in terms of getting relief from ibuprofen. So one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up is because of course once somebody in the household is sick you're 
stuck at home. Yes. So it's a really good idea, I think, to prepare in advance. And have streaming your... service? <laughs> we well, he couldn't even watch TV. I mean, that's how yeah. sick he was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for me, you know, I, I just worked from home. But uh, fluids have that stuff, like Pedialyte or Gatorade or whatever yeah. it is. And um, and the meds, we had some, yeah, we had to rely on friends and family for sure to, to take care of that because you're just, you, you know, you don't want to go out. And I never got sick. I never w- tested positive. I was boosted on December 17th. So now I am a true believer, uh, even more than I was before about that booster, uh, having been tending to a very sick person in very close proximity and never getting sick. Although again, it's a, it's an anecdote, but that was my experience. Yeah, I, you know, we see that all the time. I, I talk to family members all the time who are taking care of somebody with COVID and they, they just express shock and confusion as to why they never got it or never tested positive. And, you know, it's, this is a disease that doesn't fall a predictable model um, all the time, particularly not at the individual household level. So your experience, while kind of bizarre from from one's personal perspective, is actually quite common. Um, and you know, obviously, we may surmise that it was the booster that you recently got that helped you from ever testing positive or shedding the virus that would be picked up in a test. But we don't absolutely know that. Um, we've seen that sort of scenario play out before the booster, um, before Omicron, uh-huh. with some of the other varieties. So weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Some questions. How long after you get the infection uh, can you expect some immunity? Or can you expect an immunity boost after you've been sick with COVID and how long? How long does it last? Yeah. Yeah. Well, stay tuned is the short answer. Um, But, you know, yes, you're son now has fairly robust immunity um, to COVID, given the fact that he was vaccinated and then had the illness. That's the sort of hybrid immunity, which is, you know, we think the best immunity. But the durability of that immunity, we don't really know. Um, It's going to persist, I think we can safely predict, at least six months, um, probably to some level for a year or two even. Um, But it will decline over time, just as our immunity tends to decline with every other illness, right? That's why we get a tetanus booster every seven years. That's why, you know, the shingle shot is recommended. Um, Diphtheria is recommended as a booster as well, just because our immune system gets kind of lazy after a while and it needs to be reminded to recognize these antigens um, in the form of, you know, COVID. So then how long after somebody is asymptomatic should they get a booster or should they? They should. Um, that it's it's safe certainly, and it will further heighten one's immunity. So if you've had COVID um, recently or had Omicron in the last month, really, it's been so short, um, so mm-hmm. recent. Um, it's still recommended uh, with very good evidence that you should get the booster. And if you're not even vaccinated yet, then you should certainly initiate that vaccine series. Um, COVID is here to stay, um, and whatever you can do to boost one's immunity to COVID is a good idea as as your son has just experienced oh, yes he'll run out and get it as um, soon as he can. so in general we had recommended you know a year ago right when we we're starting to see these vaccines a very long latent interval between illness and getting the shot that has fallen a fallen to the wayside most providers most centers are quite comfortable administering the shot uh, 10 days or two weeks after resolution of symptoms um so that's kind of the window uh, I, I would shoot for 
you know, two weeks is fine. Your immunity from the recent illness is still pretty strong. Um, if you've had COVID recently, um, it's unlikely, though not impossible, that you're going to get reinfected with Omicron during those two weeks. Um, but yeah, you know, two weeks after resolution of symptoms is is adequate. After you've had it, I think that the question about vaccines and whether or not they're you know, say for something you want to put in your body just like completely falls away. Like I never want to experience that again. I will do anything I have to do uh, that's safe to stop myself from from having that illness. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly an experience that I see time and time again and at work, you know, people feeling miserable or being hospitalized or watching family members do worse with COVID. Um, it, you know, it, it does tend to uh, level the concerns a bit, um, which is kind of what we've been talking about for the last, what, a year and a yeah. half, two years. Yeah. And now so many people are going through it because yes. Omicron is yes, washing over the, this county. To the tune of 150 people a day. So, um, should we open up the phone lines? Sure. Do you have any other news oh, you want I to bring? Have, there's plenty of news. Endless news. Endless news. But yes, we can open up the phone lines, and in the lacuna, I can talk about other tidbits of okay. good information. Ooh, now I'm intrigued. Yeah. All right, it is the local coronavirus update. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax. You know the drill. The phone number here in the studio is 707 895 2448 and uh, we're here to take your coronavirus questions um curious if you are experiencing coronavirus in your household as well or if you have any questions about best care or any other questions testing let's see what what's on people's minds good morning caller you're live on the air uh yes uh today the ava reported uh uh, 142 cases in the last three days, so that seems to be in the 40, 45 range. And also, uh, I had it a couple of weeks ago, like a mild head cold, took the rapid antigen test, positive, but that was never reported to anybody. Yes. So how many, how many cases do you think are out there that are being, <clears throat> excuse me, unreported? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the answer is a lot. Um, I think we can safely multiply the county numbers by two or three at least uh, in terms of mild symptomatic confirmed home test kit um, cases. And then we can multiply that number probably by two in terms of the number of people that are asymptomatic or never even got tested or don't know that they have COVID. So, you know, we can we can say that we're probably looking at close to a thousand cases, uh, I would estimate, in this county per day during this Omicron surge. That number might be starting to drop um, over the course of the last week, but I, I think that's a fair estimate um, given the fact that we know that these reported cases are a gross undercount. As for your assertion of only 40 cases a day, I don't think that's correct. I, I think they meant to say perhaps 140 each day over the course of the last three days because the, the county numbers are um, on average 145, 150 cases per day, uh, rolling average over the last two weeks. Okay, uh, one other question. Uh, my symptoms were like a mild head cold, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, there's never been a cure for the common cold. How closely related is Omicron and the common cold? Well, that's a good, that, that's a very good question. Um, they are, 
you know, fairly similar in some respects. Um, you know, they're, they're part of a similar family of viruses. Um, the, the coronavirus um, family includes several that are endemic. Um, this one was obviously novel when it emerged over two years ago. I think in the next two years, if we don't see the emergence of new strains that are able to evade our induced and natural immunity, uh, this is going to become something similar to the upper respiratory viral infections that we're all fairly familiar with. We might not know their names, but the common cold is actually not the name of a virus, but we do have things like respiratory syncytial virus and parainfluenza virus and influenza virus, all of which are endemic in our population. SARS-CoV-19 virus is going to join that family. It's going to be a bumpy and rough transition before it does join that family, but it's going to be with us for the duration. Our kids um, and our kids' kids are going to continue to see cases of COVID, um, you know, for generations to come because it's not going away. Um, And as you rightly point out, we don't have a cure for the common cold. Uh, We just treat the symptoms. And that's kind of what we're going to be doing with COVID along with the rest of these viral illnesses. Okay, thanks for the good info. Yep. All right, thanks for the call. And speaking of speaking of cure, I mean, we do have. Um, it's interesting, I and mean, we have a lot of treatment modalities um, that are theoretically available for COVID. Um, but the the number of cases that we're seeing statewide and nationally has completely absorbed those treatments. So there are, you know, there are some very good drugs that shorten the duration of the illness um, considerably, keep people out of the hospital considerably, but we just haven't had them in the county. We'll get like one or two doses in and then the pharmacy tells us we're out again. Uh, it's It's a recurring email memo that we get from pharmacy. There are good treatments, but we can't give them to you. Good luck getting them. Correct. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Good morning. Uh, my question is, uh, what about the antibody test, and how would someone go about getting that? And um, well, I had one other one, but I forgot. But um, yeah, just trying to figure out what you know. Wh- 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 well, yeah, what about people who have, who have who are asymptomatic and have the antibodies? Uh, is there any scientific scientific stuff about trying to get them, you know, to get antibodies from them, etc. So I'll take my answer off the air. Thanks. Yeah, so, you know, the the antibody question, the antibody test, and the... Um, convalescent plasma sort of question um, has been sort of floated for for two years now. Um, I urge caution and will continue to urge caution from to getting any sort of antibody test. It's just, it's a very complex immune system that we're talking about and there's not just a single good test that can tell you that yes, you are um, you have robust immunity to COVID. There's just not um, a good way to get that and interpret that in a way that is Um, scientifically well-informed, with perhaps the caveat, and I hate making these caveats, with perhaps the caveat of somebody who may um, be significantly immune-suppressed. You might consider getting an antibody test, although, frankly, I think the the smarter course of action is just to continue to get reboosted um, and boosted and reboosted if you have significant uh, immune suppression. 
And then the question of, I think this is your question, in terms of getting the antibodies from those people and using that as a treatment. Yes, that had been floated, that had been explored, um, kind of a convalescent plasma obtained from people who had COVID. We've moved beyond that. The data on that really wasn't super great ever to begin with. Um, And now with these new strains emerging, it's not clear that the old plasma would work against the new variants, etc. And we have better, more streamlined treatment in the form of synthetic um, monoclonal antibodies for people who um, you know meet the criteria. There are antiviral medications, but as I just said, they are in exceedingly short supply. Um, and so, you know, we're not using those too much in the ER. Um, occasionally, people will come and, and be treated if they're high risk and they meet fairly strict rationing protocols that we have to have in place. Yes, I said rationing. It's like winning the lottery if you got two of these, two treatments. Well, it's a lottery you don't want to win because it means that you are at risk of doing poorly enough that you qualify for these treatments. So, you know, whenever I tell somebody that they've qualified for the monoclonal antibody um, or, you know, up until we completely ran out of Paxlovid, um, you know, that was always not good not good because you're kind of in the high risk category all right let's take our next call good morning caller you're live on the air good morning um if i take a quick test um it will not say if i've just been exposed a minute prior to that through covid right correct how long is it between exposure and the accuracy of a quick test. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, yes, I could be, you know, Alicia and I are in the studio right now. We could be giving COVID to one another. We're not going to test positive from that exposure today. Um, in general, if you are going to contract COVID, um, most people sort of settle on the 48 hours to five or six day window of becoming um, positive, not necessarily symptomatic, but um, becoming test positive for COVID. It, I think the majority of cases are actually going to fall in the uh, 72 hour to five day kind of period. Um, but they're, you know, it's a bell curve and some people will pick it up and shed much more quickly, which means they're going to be testing positive more quickly. Other people might be way out on the other end of that bell curve and looking at 10 days or even two weeks. I think that curve flattens out pretty fast um, with the peak being probably around four and a half days. I think we should, uh, get this information out people are taking these rapid tests and say oh i'm fine but well it's not necessarily true well that's correct i mean the the testing you know and this was something that we saw you know over and over again with these outbreaks you know most infamously at the white house a year and a half ago you know you can't test yourself out of uh being you know concerned about covid right Uh, a negative test is a snapshot um but it doesn't mean that you are you know harboring and inoculating uh or 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 culturing the virus um and may be positive 12 or 24 hours after a negative rapid mm-hmm. test um that's possible i mean it is good to have a negative test to be sure and that mitigates the risk but it's not it's not 100 percent effective in terms of telling you absolutely you don't have the virus okay then then i would want to take several rapid tests over a period of a week maybe and then and then i would know that at least Unless I, if I have not been exposed, 
then I then I don't have it. But it, there's a lot of gray area in those for several days. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you for the question. And I wonder if you get that negative rapid test, if that means that you're not in- infectious or potentially spreading it, even if you are um, yeah, the culturing ra- it. The rapid test is is, is quite good. I mean, it, there you know, it's not nothing's a hundred percent, right? And operator error is obviously a feature of these tests. Um, but in general, if you have a well administered self test at home and it comes back negative, I think for the vast majority of us, that is sufficiently reliable to to presume that you're not shedding that virus, you're not infectious uh, during that day. Now, it doesn't really translate to the next day, um, right. but during that day, I think that's a, that's a good enough window in, term, in terms of your own COVID health that you can rely upon that. Not 100%, um, but given where we are in this pandemic, I think that risk level is tolerable for almost all of us. All right, let's take our next call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, I just had a question. Um, it seems like like a vaccinated adult who gets COVID, regardless of uh, symptomatic or asymptomatic, um, is kind of similar to an unvaccinated child getting COVID in terms of the seriousness of the the disease, the likelihood that they're not going to die. And I heard that there's um, Pfizer's trying to push through um, a vaccine um, for children uh, six months old and up. And I've just been hearing that there's work in California to um, try and mandate uh, the vaccine for, for very, very young children. And I'm just curious what the doctor's opinions are on that and why we need to vaccinate young children if they're such low risk. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And Pfizer, you're correct. Pfizer has applied for authorization for children under the age of five. Um, that hasn't yet gone through emergency use authorization, um, but they have applied. They just applied in the last couple of days. Um, the dosing is a little bit uh, more difficult for them to sort of land on. Um, it was a one-tenth size dose, but it seemed to be that that dose was perhaps not quite enough for the children at the top end of that age range versus the children at the bottom end of that age range just because well kids grow um but um that that safety profile for the kids in that age is quite good um and what we have been seeing particularly with omicron is that it 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 infects children um probably at the same rate as it affects adults, but it does seem to be making children a bit more symptomatic than some of the earlier strains. Um, the children's hospitals have been quite um, busy. I say that from personal experience. They have had a significant surge in very sick uh, children, some of whom are very little um, in this age range, and we know that the vaccine is um, quite safe and just as effective in children as it is in adults. So that's the impetus for pushing for getting the vaccine rolled out to the 20 million or 18 million or so children under the age of five in this country who are at risk from not only Omicron, but COVID in general, and all of the antecedent or all of the sequelae that may come from an infection, uh, which is to say they may get long COVID, they may get myocarditis, they might have some of these uh, complications that we see from COVID in children um, that can be quite quite dangerous. Um, 
setting aside the question of you know greater induced immunity in the population as a whole yeah well so i know like when you and i were children you're probably just a little bit older than me i don't mean any offense by that Um, you're probably wiser than me too but um you know we had very few vaccinations um you know i I had the basics you know uh, 40 years ago um I have a two-year-old daughter who's supposed to be getting some of like 39 doses of vaccine by the time she's, you know, three years old, uh, coming in the form of many combination shots. And I just don't see how throwing another one on top of that, how we can say that we don't know that there's complications with all those vaccines. Uh, as children's immune systems are, are developing, the bodies are developing, we we don't know that they're safe for a child who's six months years old. Actually, we, uh, we do, sir. No. A five-year-old five doesn't mean it's safe for a six-month-old who's getting, you know, 20 other uh, vaccines. Yeah. So I, I think you and I come at the the, vac- the childhood vaccine schedule quite different from quite different places. Um, I I have three children. Um, they are all fully vaccinated according to the pediatric vaccine dosing schedule. And frankly, I see the 39 different, if it is 39, I haven't counted it recently, but that sounds about right. Um, the 39 different um, vaccine um shots or combination shots um, is actually, from my perspective, a significant advance in the reduction of childhood morbidity and mortality. So I see that as a huge um, boon to them um, that was only partial, partially available to the two of us, right? And having just worked yesterday when I saw somebody who was still suffering from the sequelae of polio, um, you know, I I kind of feel like these diseases that we're able to control with vaccines um, are, you know, it's one of the great um, advances of science, honestly. I have been robustly critical of the billions of dollars that Pfizer and Moderna and whatnot are are banking off of this pandemic, but the vaccines themselves we know are safe and effective. And your hypothetical concern about the about the um, risk of a pediatric immune system being somehow triggered to go haywire from the vaccine is really just that. That is not borne out by the data. Uh, we know that children's immune systems are exposed to literally hundreds of thousands of antigens on a daily basis, um, and it handles that quite well. I mean, take your kid out yeah, and stick well, I, I just, I'll, I'll finish with one last thing. You, know, you and I love organic food. Why? Because we like naturally grown food without synthetic crap in it. Now, the vaccines, a lot of them are not a naturally derived thing. And so I can see how someone who likes organic food would be hesitant to take vaccines. Um, that might not be a fair equivalence, but neither is equating polio to COVID. Well, it is polio actually. Is different than COVID. No, it's not. Polio is totally different than COVID. And if you look at the open VAERS, Open V A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. You'll call there was more. No, don't. don't you got to all right, All right, let's move he, on. He calls in regularly. He doesn't like vaccines, and uh, good luck to him and his children. 707-895-2448. This is the local coronavirus update. I'm Alicia Bales, live in the studio with Dr. Drew Colfax. 
And we have been on the air doing this local coronavirus update for two years now. So as you're as you're giving these answers, it's a lot of stuff that you have patiently said over and over and over. I, and I do feel like a broken record sometimes, but, you know. Not so a lot good. of surprise here. Yes. And that caller also has called in many, many, many times, times making yes. the same argument. So yes. we are going to move on. Well, uh, the, maybe. He might be back on the line. <laughs> the Who phone knows? lines are <laughs> blinking away. We're going to let other people on the air. Hello, caller. You are live on the air. Hi, let me get the uh, uh, radio here. Appreciate okay. that. Um, since the topic, uh, you know, of uh, home care came up and, and discussion of the uh, using the uh, anti-inflammatories, uh, pain relievers, over-the-counter yep. stuff, I think it's always important to, to remind people that uh, uh, there are side effects to those uh, drugs, and in particular the, the Tylenol, it can be rather dangerous if you exceed the uh, recommended dosages by very much. It damages the liver or something. Yeah, and I, I, I think some people are pretty cavalier about, oh, if two pills are good, maybe I'll take three or four, you know. And uh, a public education about that kind of stuff. That's yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good point, which is why I was fairly precise in the dosing schedule. Um, Tylenol, yeah. Tylenol or acetaminophen is probably the single safest medication um, that we have in the pharmacy, either over-the-counter or prescription, with perhaps the exception of, like, Tums. Um, It has a very good safety uh, profile at the recommended doses, but it has the remarkable uh, effect of significant toxicity in overdose. Um, The the margin is is much higher than the 1,000 or the 3,000 or 3,500 milligrams daily dosage, yeah, but it is one of the non. It's probably the leading cause of death um, of any medication in this country, um, excluding um, sedating medications. So, if you exclude the narcotics and the benzos and the medications that sedate you and cause you to go into respiratory failure, Tylenol is probably the single largest cause of death in this country from a medication. That's in the form of intentional overdose. Um, it's just an extremely toxic, nasty, wow. nasty medication in overdose. In in sort of the over recommended over-the-counter dosage, it's quite safe indeed, and it's quite safe indeed even in people with mild to moderate or even significant um, liver disease. Um, it, the liver can just handle it quite well at those dosages. But it's a good point. Um, same with ibuprofen. I mean, I you know my my family members have been known to eat ibuprofen by the handful, particularly when they were you know sort of trying to exceed their age range in terms of athletic activities. Um, But it really doesn't work any better um, over the 600 milligram dosage. Um, And so 600 milligrams three times a day is going to be tolerated by just about all of us, particularly if you take it with food. It can be upsetting to the stomach. So, you know, that's something to be aware of if you have a history of bleeding ulcers or irritable stomach or esophagitis or anything like that, then you know, caution is advised. But in general, these are medications that are quite safe and very effective. Really good to know. Thank you. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Um, yeah, my name is Jeff, and I've called in before. But I was wondering if there's a test that can tell whether you've had COVID, you know, during this period of time that it's been around. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, so that 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 sort of segues us into the the antibody tests, um, which are 
you know, they're out there. They're not readily, readily available. There's not an over-the-counter form of it. Um, interp- and interpretation of those tests is quite difficult. Um, and so, Jeff, I don't know if you're vaccinated, but then that would simply yeah, tell you. Yeah, so you're not going to have, there's not going to be a test then that's going to distinguish your immune response that was induced from the vaccine versus your having had the illness. Um, there's just no way to know whether you actually had a very mild or asymptomatic uh, Omicron illness in the last month or um, if the immunity that we may pick up in some sort of antibody test um, is induced from the vaccines. Um, So it it would be nice, right? Although it wouldn't really inform us in terms of what we should or should not do going forward. Um, That's just, you know, it's it's not a test that's going to be actually all that useful guiding your daily activities. Um, So well, my problem my problem was um, with memory. My hmm. memory went haywire after I took the first Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, and I am totally in fear of taking. Any other, because of the effect it did to my mind, not to my body, not to saving me or helping other people, but to my actual thinking process. So I'm really worried about having a thinking problem that gets much worse the more I take of these things that you're saying are important. No, I I hear you, and you know you're not the first caller who's called in and expressed some concern around uh, cognition in relation to uh, these vaccines. Um, I, you know, that does not um, rise to the level of something that has been identified as a significant risk factor with these vaccines. But you know, your reports and reports of other people um, are certainly concerning um the call or several calls well, if, it, if it did if it did rise to the um the level that is needed would they start recommending not to take the boosters well they they would if people if there was if there were a significant um data bank to support that i'm not seeing well, look that for it. well i Most know people it, won't remember to call most people don't remember to tell them that they don't know anymore. You can't think well. well so how are you going to get the data if it doesn't come out? That that is a that is a point well taken, sir. Okay. All right. Thank but you. in general, I mean, if you've only received the J and J as your initial vaccine, um, you may um, you may feel more comfortable mixing it up and doing one of the. Um, other vaccines, which are quite different in terms of their structure, um, which are... Well, I wouldn't feel comfortable taking anything else just because of the fact that the first thing did something. I don't want to try something else and find out some other serious malady happens to me that I didn't have before that the next shot will give me. And how many shots is enough? And when will it stop? Yeah, we don't want to know that. No, not Omicron, but they're asking for more doses. Yeah, get the seventh, get the ninth, get the twelfth. How, how, when does this part stop? Stay tuned. Dot, dot, okay, dot. Yeah. thanks. All right, thanks for the call. Thank you. But you're doing qu- quite an effective job of remembering and calling us. <laughs> so uh, maybe people can remember to 
report that symptom. You know, it, it, even, you know, the, the caller that we had to sort of mute down a few callers ago referenced the, the vaccine adverse reporting uh, website that's maintained by the CDC. That's not showing a significant uptake in um, cognition problems secondary to um, the vaccines. That's just not really something that's even showing up in that data bank. And that data bank is pretty cruddy, frankly, because by design, it's supposed to be a very sort of broad uh, catchment basement for anything that could possibly be related to any vaccine administration. Um, and so I, I I don't really know what to make of this um, cognitive sort of delay that some people are associating with the vaccine. It's interesting, to say the least. But cognitive problems are definitely associated with COVID and long COVID, right? Yes, no, quite, quite. They've been able to pick it up when it actually exists with COVID infection. Yes, very much so. Let's take another call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Good morning. I have what seems like an unusual situation here. <clears throat> Good. I was exposed I was exposed to someone with COVID about 10 days ago, and then about two, three days later, I had mild sore throat. Not terrible, but, you know, I don't usually get sick at all. And then on Wednesday, I took a PCR test, didn't get the results. Friday, I took a PCR test and a, and a rapid test. Well, the rapid test was negative. And the next day, no, the next day in the evening, I checked online, and my PCR was positive. So I was like, oh, man, this is bad here, because I had been around people the day before thinking I was safe. So yesterday, uh, public health called me and said, well, we, we see that you tested positive uh, for, for COVID. And uh, they asked me a bunch of questions about my symptoms and stuff. And then she said, well, I'm going to need to talk it over in terms of what we do with you. And she called back and she said, the threshold of your virus was was low enough that you were not infectious and that I'm not a current case and I didn't need isolate. Have you heard that before? That that is an interesting sequence. So just in terms of your testing sequence, it's it's interesting in how you've experienced this, right? So I'm I'm not sure which of your PCR test was positive. It was probably the Wednesday one, I would surmise. Oh, the Wednesday, <clears throat> the Wednesday one was negative. So it was your it was your second one on Friday the, that was positive. The second one on Friday was positive, but, and the rapid on Friday was negative. Okay, so you know, I, I, false positives are quite rare with any of these tests. Um, false negatives are much more common, or relatively more common. So I think we have to take your positive um, test at face value, and that you in fact did have COVID, which is why you had the sore throat, particularly with a known exposure. Um, the rapid antigen test that was negative on the same day is a bit more crude and really is a better test at telling us or telling you whether you are actively shedding virus. Um, the PCR tests tend to stay positive for longer and can muddle the waters quite a bit in terms of getting a sense as to whether you are contagious um, to others. I'm not quite clear why the county sort of just gave you the green light. You should have been um, told to isolate at least for the five days um, after that positive test. 
But then again, they're also dealing with 150 cases a day right now, and you are just one of those 150. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you have, you know, more or less recovered from this rather mild illness. But the testing sort of mosaic that you're that you've experienced is not all that unusual, honestly. We we do see that quite a bit. It can cause a lot of cognitive dissonance because while well, you have a negative test and you have a positive test, and you have a negative test, and you're like, well, was this COVID or was this something else? In general, um, one positive test is going to trump any number of negative tests, uh, particularly in some somebody who's mildly symptomatic. Um, and, you know, at that point, you you should be going into isolation for a minimum of those five days. Okay, and then I asked about future testing. Yeah. And she, she said, uh, probably don't do a PCR for the next 90 days. Yeah, exactly. And that, and you, it's just going to cause, it's just going to cause distress. Um, and so, you know, the, the negative antigen test, which you already had on Friday, tells us that you, you probably have already cleared the virus um, in any significant way. You're no longer transmitting it to others, which is why they are kind of lax at telling you that it's okay for you to just sort of go about your business. But, you know, to be a stickler on this, um, a five-day period of isolation is, is really Really still the recommendation. Okay, great. All right. Thanks for the show. Yep. Thanks for the call. Hang in there. Interesting when it's kind of hard to get your hands on antigen tests. They're a little bit pricey. Yeah, they are expensive. And, you know, like like the caller before, you know, you can go through a lot of them pretty quickly. Yep. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous that we're not just getting these, you know, free from the government. But. Well, we are. You can get four for your household, but yes. in a household like mine where there's two um, two units, yep. I was too late. Yep, no, I- exactly. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, a household like mine where there are five units that you tend to go through the, the, the home test pretty quickly. Do you even have, like, a, a place to get mail in your household? Do a you have to, to have, like, P.O. Box or whatever? Well, this is, you know, Mendocino County. Do you have yes. a mailbox? Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, good for you. That's progress. Yeah. Um, let's take our next call. 895-2448. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Uh, hello? That's hello. you. Hi. Okay. Um, first time caller. Um, I just wanted to put out there, out there that um, I don't think it's really okay for you to self-censor people when there's people out here that want to hear what everybody in this county has to say. Whether or not it goes against what you personally believe, but there are many thousands of doctors who do not agree with what you are saying and are being censored. And that's a huge red flag. So there's data is the only thing that we have right now to like go off of for adverse reactions. And this vaccine alone has had more reactions than all of the vaccines for the last 30 years combined. So um, I think it would be respectful to let everybody have um, their word put in and their perspective because there's a lot going on right now and people are being forced to do things that isn't necessarily don't want to do. And um, that's true. Yep, that is definitely true. And I, I will say that in general, we don't cut people off. That particular caller has called multiple times and made more or less the same point many times. Um, and this I, is... I, 
This I is hold on, hold on, hold on. I let you speak. Let me speak. This is my show, um, and I am quite happy to cut people off when I feel like we have visited and revisited. Hold on, I'm still talking, ma'am. Talk. Yes, and so I, you know, in some cases, and I will do it again. I will. We will cut people off if it's a point that has been made multiple times, and if it's one that is based on faulty um, information that um, some people are holding on to. Uh, for reasons that um, we've gone into multiple times on this show, but go ahead. But what were you going to say? You know, but not um, not everybody is listening every time the show is on, and so you know his perspective might be first heard. You know, um, so you've heard it because it's your show. You have every week, and um, every other to, week, to you, or every other week. So to you, it seems like this person is calling over and over again. But um, there are a lot of concerned parents, and he's making the valid, the valid questions, and we should all be questioning a lot of things right now. Um, so I just, I just wanted to put that out there because I've listened. I don't listen every time, but every time I've listened to this show, you tend to censor people, and people are being censored on the bigger platforms of of social media and everything right now. I mean, you have to look at the bigger picture when things are getting censored. Why is it? You know? Okay, well, I don't agree with you that we're censoring people. Yeah, I, this is I, an I, open line show. And I, think in, I think in, in the two years, uh, with the exception of people who have used profanity on our show, I think we've cut off maybe two or three callers in and, two years. And it's great to hear from callers. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear like all that. perspectives. That's why I am donating my time to this show. Um, and I have made an effort uh, throughout this to hear people's concerns regarding vaccines. I don't think that those concerns are illegitimate. Um, I do think that they are based on faulty and erroneous interpretation of the evidence. Um, but I have been more than happy to hear these concerns over and over and over again, frankly. Um, it just sometimes we need to move on, so to speak. All right. Thanks for the call. Let's. I think we can take one more. Well, I actually call? have an email. I might oh, want okay. to address this because it was a, a concern, and I think it's a legitimate concern. And okay, so great. it's an emailed question regarding getting the fourth booster, um, which is, to be clear, not yet uh, fully authorized. And this person had um, some difficulty finding somebody to get. Um, them to give a fourth booster shot because they hadn't yet reached the six month window of needing to be boosted. I, you know, that that's not illegitimate. Um, the fact that people are reluctant to give a fourth booster uh, within the six month window, I think six months is a little bit long, frankly, particularly with um, Omicron and the numbers that we're seeing right now. Um, but that's kind of the standard that we're still looking at. There are obviously end runs around this emergency use authorization, um, off-label use of the vaccines is, you know, does happen. Um, but I'm not surprised that this caller has run into problems or this emailer has run into problems getting that fourth booster when it's less than six months since the previous vaccine. And most people are just now sort of getting into that window. Most boosters were administered, sort of the earliest boosted people were late August, um, early September. So we're still seeing, you know, fairly good immunity in that early boosted cohort.
All right. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. We don't have time for another call. There's so many lines lit up. I know. Really got people calling in yep, today. Yep. I guess doing it every other week. Um, well, know. and also the censorship. Well, yeah, people have a lot to say about censorship. It's yes. weird that you are being censored when you're on the air talking about the fact that you're being censored. Um, but, you know, so we'll, we will be back in two weeks uh, on February 15th at 9 a.m., Got any uh, advice for people over the next two weeks as we see you know, Omicron hopefully recede? I think, you know, it, 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 it was a long month, um, to be sure. I think the next two weeks we're going to see a substantial improvement, um, you know, in, in a very tangible sort of way. And by the end of February, Omicron is going to become, you know, we're going to be back to the baseline level of COVID that we were seeing during sort of the nadir um, over the course of the last year, which is good um i also anticipate that that's going to be the point where we start to see this as an endemic um illness rather than a pandemic and things might actually start going toward normal by the spring um so reason for optimism to be sure um i don't even remember what normal is right anyway so yes be safe I would still urge people to be a bit careful for the next week or two while the numbers recede. Um, the wave has crashed upon us, but it is, you know, still waist deep in COVID, if you will. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for calling. And thanks, Drew, for continuing to be here. Of course. Really thanks, callers. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been the Local Coronavirus Update podcast with Dr. Drew Colfax, Produced by Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can also hear us live on the web at www.kzyx.org. If you'd like to listen live and call in to the local coronavirus update, you can find us every first and third Tuesday of the month at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Our live studio call-in number is 707-895-2448. You can also email your questions to dj at kzyx.org. And you can always listen to our podcast, KZYX Local Coronavirus Update with Dr. Drew Colfax. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is Bad News Blues by Lucinda Williams, and our outro music is a song called Stumptown, composed and performed by Zach Borden. I'm Alicia Bales. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.